Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, a soft, fierce, and wise conversation from inside the Black experience at this pivotal time to be alive. Tracy K. Smith and Michael Kleber Diggs are teachers, writers, and contributors to a stunning new book, There's a Revolution Outside, My Love, Letters from a Crisis. And there is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. I think I'm hearing Krista get on. You are. Hello, Hi, everyone. Hey, Good Tracy. Morning. How are you? Oh, you know, I try, I try to answer that question honestly these days. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and Michael, is that you? It is, yes. Good morning. Good morning. And you're sitting in my place. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm jealous because I'm sitting under sleeping bags. <laughs> We can trade if you would like. <laughs> no, we worked this out. All right. Um, uh, you know, I um, we've never met, but um, just as soon as we decided we were going to do this, and I had read your essay in the book, um, then I was in Healing Our City the next morning, and there you were. Oh. And then, which I've been doing that almost every morning, and then I came into the studio like the next day, and your book of poetry had just arrived. So I thought, okay, this is meant to be. That, yes. <laughs> I'm, like a, I'm like when you buy a car that you don't often see, and then all of a sudden you see it everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Tracy, it's so good to hear your voice. Oh, likewise. I'm excited to, to be together in yeah. this way. Yeah. I'm going to um, jump in before we get started. Yes. Just double check with all three of you that you're you're comfortable with the levels you're hearing each other. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yes. Krista, is your mix pre-recording? You know, it, uh, Zach, it's been full for a little while. Yeah, it's working. I've got Google okay. running on your machine. Okay. And Zoom is rolling a backup. And okay. Tracy, yours is recording again? Yes. <clears throat> okay, we're all set. Okay, there's something I wanted to look up that I wrote in my notes and somehow like cut and then didn't paste. Um, oh, there it is. Okay. Okay. Um, Okay, well, I'm, I'm really, I'm happy to be here with the two of you, and, um, you know, and it it feels it feels heavy in in an appropriate way. This book feels heavy in an appropriate way, and um, and having this conversation, um, you know, it's interesting to me, and maybe I haven't been paying attention, but I feel like there are a lot of pandemic memoirs out there suddenly that's coming. But I haven't really seen this this kind of what this book represents is which is kind of a telling of this story mm-hmm. of the past year. 
And I know you're pulling together, you know, it's not a single memoir, but it is what it, I think what it, it, it it's just right that it's like, as you say, 40 different records, um, 40 different missives. And um, so I, I want you to know that when we, when we produce the show, which is going to be soon, I will make that clear, these many voices and, um, and what the book is and we'll We'll absolutely, like, you know, really try to give this book a big push out into the world. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. And, but I just, like, for this purpose, for our conversation, we're not going to talk so much about the book as really both of your contributions to it. So I just okay. want, I want you to know you can relax into both of those things. Okay. Um, I also know that if you have publicists, they're telling you now. I mean, you know, Tracy, you've done this before. They're telling you, like, mention the book. But, like, I just want you to know, we, I will mention the book. Um, and and I also assume that it's important for the two of you that you're part of this this collective of voices. So I'm going to make that clear. But I really do want to dive deep dive deep now into what into your voices. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to say before we start, um, it's been so much on my mind this year that so I spent most most of my twenties, which was the 1980s, in divided Berlin. And um, and when the wall fell in 1989, you know, I never thought, so I turned 60 this year, I never thought that in my lifetime there would be another, another year, another moment with a capital M that felt so much like, like there was a before and an after, civilizationally. Mm. And... It's been really stunning to me, and and that having that experience now, <laughs> almost forty years ago, um, has been formative for me. And then having this experience of the last year, and for me, that before and the after, is really the murder of George Floyd in the midst of the pandemic, in the context of the pandemic. This you know before and this after, and and. I live in Minneapolis, which is is a new fault line of this. Not that what happened is new, but it's this fault line from which a lot radiated out, right? And so um, that also is has been kind of astonishing to me. And at this civilizational juncture, um, the three of us in this conversation, our our identities stand in a different relationship to this fault line. And and that's part of what it's about. It's not merely what it's about, but that's a really long-winded way of saying that I can. I truly, truly um, am a listener in this conversation. Um, I feel the gravity of this moment in this conversation, and the place I have in it, and the place I don't have in it. And so, I really want you all to. Um, I mean, I'm going to do my job. Like, I'm, I'm going to guide us through this, and I have questions, and I have places I want to go. But I'm hoping that you'll also converse with each other if you want to do that. You don't, right? You can react to something. You don't need me to come in and ask you a question. Okay. And it's a little bit complicated because we can't see each other. Um, but just, I just want to offer that invitation. And, um, you know, I, I feel like this book is really important and, I mean, really important. And what you all have to say is really important. And so my role here is like making room for you to give voice to what wants to be given voice to and life to what wants to be given life in, in this after, right? This after with a capital A. Okay, so that's my, 
my <coughs> prelude. Um, and yeah, so Tracy, let's just start. You you co-edited this this book, and you know, I'd 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 love to start with this, and maybe these are your first lines, but certainly early in the introduction that you wrote. Um, that you that you entered the summer of 2020 with this feeling of having come to a crossroads, and you said, "Yeah, yeah." Let me say, let me say one more thing. We, the the spirit of the book and the spirit of this conversation is is what happened, and and how do we live forward, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it's not we're not it's not just looking back, and and that is. That is reflected in something you say in the introduction that, you know, with this feeling of having come to a crossroads, um, you said with that came the sensation of being pulled simultaneously forward and backward in time. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, this year amplified a feeling that I have had for some time that history is upon us. History is, you know, not only on our heels, but maybe it's it's catching up and and we're feeling it its hand against our back. Um, and during the pandemic, witnessing so many acts of violence against unarmed Black citizens, which is nothing new, mm-hmm. but almost feeling as if all of America was held in place in a theater, watching this happen and reacting together amplified all of the the feelings of grief, anger, and determination to muster some sense of a, an adequate response and a sense of okay how do we how do we move forward with a different momentum, something other than this rote, historic pattern playing itself again and again. Um, You know, I had, like everyone, I had months to sit and and turn that question over in my mind, both in language and in terms of the inevitable emotions that were, you know, also upon me. And, um, you know, as a poet, I'm always trying to learn something new from what is at hand, to learn something new from my own vocabulary for, you know, language, but also for feeling. And I just had this desire to do that together with everyone else in America mm-hmm. and see if we might, you know, get somewhere. Mm-hmm. Where where were you? Were you, were you at home in, in yeah, Princeton? Yeah, I was at home in Princeton yeah. this year, you know, um, and watching the world. But I also, you know, I'm a member of a campus community where these conversations are happening on another level mm. as they relate to students and faculty of color and our sense of ourselves as an institution and what we are supposed to be doing, what um, what we might begin to do and understand differently. Yeah. And um, those can be very encouraging conversations, but they can also be um, intensely contentious. And yeah. that that was another kind of dramatic situation that, that shaped my thinking. Yeah, and I think the contentiousness of of that conversation and all of our conversations this year has been exacerbated by the pandemic foundation mm-hmm. that we're living in. Um, but were you surprised that um, 
Were you surprised that, that where this also took you was, was feeling your way back to the, you said, this hope was unleashing you with echoes that felt of Freedom mm-hmm. Summer 1964, which was before you were born? Yeah. Well, I was trying to think of moments that felt as momentous where something new and durable was born. And mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. iconic summer, you know, college students joining with Mississippi's black residents to um, open up the the voting process for blacks in, in that part of the country and to perhaps more importantly, expose all of the terrible violence that um, threatened black people who wanted to participate in in um, the vote voting um, that seemed like it could be useful to say all right how how did that moment um, how did it get in to the American imagination in such a, a useful way yeah and you know as I as I learned more, I understood, okay, there are some ways in which Freedom Summer didn't reach the large goals that, that it might have had. Yeah. Um, and that's also important because, you know, a realistic look at most of the crossroads that America has found itself at um, reveals that m- much is always lost yeah. when these opportunities arise. Are you You kind of... I, I don't. I don't it's, it, that's interesting that you were kind of yourself delving in to learn more about it. Um, I mean, you found, you know, there there was the death of young black men as well, right? Emmett Till yeah. is this is this that that and that is so resonant in some ways, so directly resonant with what we're still experiencing. And and then as you, another thing that you. That you noted is here's something you said that young that this that this image of young white volunteers in Mississippi allowed white Northerners to see their own children in the struggle, and that those volunteers were stripped of some of the privilege of their whiteness. Yeah, I think that's essential in the same way that images from you know an earlier period in the civil rights movement, you know, police hoses and dogs on on these peaceful protesters alerted. Yeah. The white imagination to a reality that it had been blind to. Those those college kids, um, they made a dent in some way in the imagination, and maybe that's one of the that's one of the things that made twenty twenty feel aligned with those earlier moments in history. The pandemic had us all almost sitting in front of the same TV. You know, yeah. I think of like a nineteen yeah. sixties TV with a big three round channels. Tube. Yeah, yeah. We were all there, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily by choice, but um, it was hard to escape the knowledge of what was happening. And of course, for, for many of us, we've always known about this and it has has been happening to such an extent that, um, you know, I found myself more surprised at the guilty verdict of Derek Chauvin than any of the, any of the deaths that tragically occurred this summer. Mm. Um, but to come together and say, can we, can we, think and feel all of these different levels of awareness in the same space as though America were one big living room, you know, that, that felt, um, that felt meaningful. Yeah. Um, so Michael, you, uh, are in Minneapolis. You weren't born in Minneapolis, right? But you, you live here now. Yeah. I'm, I'm, was born in Kansas and I live in St. Paul. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, one of the things you wrote, and you know, I didn't. What was the name of your essay in the book? I, um, Complex flavors of black joy, and I think I'm, I'm on page thirty-five. <clears throat> yeah, on the complex flavors of black joy. So, um, you know, you, um, you say. Being born black in an anti-black country is like being handed a stone at birth, an object you have to carry and can never throw. Um, and that one of the effects of George Floyd's murder, at least in the beginning, you had a sense that people saw that, partially, that you felt seen, not fully seen, but differently seen. Yeah. Seen in a different way. And I was, at the time that I was writing that, I was thinking a lot about how do I capture this moment. And I was also thinking about, I'm, I'm reflecting back on what Tracy shared. I was thinking about time and place hmm. and proximity with respect to both of those. So this was the first time I've been as, as you described it, at the epicenter of a international event. Yeah. Um, and a part of what was on my mind is how do I retain the details of this time? And that was related to the pandemic, but also to the summer and to the uprising in response to the killing of George Floyd. So how do I remember the nights putting my fire extinguisher on the kitchen countertop uh, so that if there's a fire, I, I don't have to wonder where it is and how do I capture those details. And so it was a time of noticing. I think of that as part of my arts practice anyway, but a, a heightened kind of noticing. And I was thinking about myself in this place, uh, the Twin Cities, which is my home and uh, an, an area that I love in so many ways. Um, but thinking about myself in the space and feeling hyper-visible at times and invisible other, at other times, but definitely during that summer, during last summer, feeling hyper-visible, feeling noticed, mm -hmm. um, and, and also spending some time reflecting on how I was being noticed and, and what people wanted to communicate to me um, in, their, in their interactions Often without words, but just you know the smiles, the um, that I described them. I think is over eager smiles. Yeah. Uh, and and I was thinking about that and and how that over time can start to dissipate as we get back to um, regular routines. Mm hmm. Um. So a phrase you used. Um, which I think um, is really ep epitomized in, in, in Minneapolis, right? I mean, it's true that um, things that happen here happen in other parts of America, but this, I think, may be distinctive, um, the violent politeness of modern racism. Mm -hmm. um, would you describe what that is, how you've experienced that? Yeah, so there's a there's a couple components to it, and and I want to I want to start by saying I always imagine myself as someone 
who cares about inhumanity and injustice wherever it's happening. A person who's as affected by what's happening in Syria or Myanmar or that be as concerned about Adam Toledo as I would be about Dante Wright. Yeah. Um, but the Twin Cities is a unique place in a way. It's cold here a lot. And I think we have months that pass where we don't interact with a lot of people or we don't interact with people as much as we used to. And in a way, I think that shapes our interactions all the time. Um, hmm. But I don't see that violent politeness as a Twin Cities phenomenon necessarily. Um, but it's just the way that we tolerate so many things that are wrong or are unwilling to confront things that are wrong because what we'd rather do is be civil and kind. And mm-hmm. um, and, and we don't want anyone, even if they're acting in a way that is racist or misogynistic, we don't want that person to feel terrible either. Um, so we let it go or we um, kind of just we, we don't confront it. Uh, is is how I think about it, and that what that does, of course, is it perpetuates mm-hmm. um, violence. If 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 it's not confronted, if it's not challenged, then that silence becomes a form of of action. Right, right. Um, something you wrote. Um you said 15 days after George Floyd's death, a familiar hopelessness set in. As I walked Ziggy and Jasper around the neighborhood, many passers-by... Oh, gosh, I've got my, my, right, my lighting in here under this um, sleeping bag is difficult. Okay. Many passers-by viewed us with concern. There it is. The overeager smiles of late May and early June. Smiles communicating concern for my well-being. Smiles that said that you are welcome here. Succumbed to a familiar succumbed to a familiar consternation. Suspicious eyes, some friendliness, but also long, wary looks from people I've lived among more than ten years now. Steps grew leaden and sad. You see, I am carrying this stone. There's that stone again. Would you say would you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, and to describe that. I think it's just me in this space, um, in in a state that is not extremely diverse, and living in a a neighborhood that is that is not diverse, Um, and and being out and about, and and frankly, more than I usually was. I I was working from home for the first time and uh, walking the dogs all the time rather than hoping they made it through the workday. And um, so I was out more and I was seen more and just a lot of things about that and about my body. And I, I wanted to write a little bit about my body too, but um, being black in a primarily white space, being big in a, in a country that favors smaller people and um, being a man in a patriarchy and in a world where men um, do awful things and and like there's a certain level where a person should be wary of of a man and and, and thinking about that and all those kind of complicated things but juxtaposing that to how I had been treated closer to uh, George Floyd's death 
really noticing the difference between those two things. So it's the smiles that are hello and I see you and you're welcome here and I'm so glad you're my neighbor and I hope you're okay that over time started to get back down to um, like what's what's he doing like what's going on with that guy and um, less friendly less warm less welcoming um, and really just wanted wanting to kind of spend some time in that and and it's often called micro assaults or microaggressions and the daily wage of, you know, not feeling accepted, not feeling comfortable in your neighborhood or in your front yard sometimes. And, um, the weight of that and the, the way it can make a person feel over time. And then you turn to a song called chocolate and started dancing in the streets yeah. regardless of all of that. Right. Would you read, um, you have your book with you? I do. Okay, page 44. Um, I was wondering if you could read, starting at, at, starting at that paragraph on page 44, more than anything, and then to the end of the chapter. Sure. More than anything, one line in chocolate stood out for me. It's a line connected to a life preserver that arrived when I felt I couldn't tread water much longer. When I was tired and felt alone, like there was no safe harbor in sight. It wasn't that I wanted to let go and sink. It was that it was hard to keep my head above water and carry my stone at the same time. I wanted a place to rest. Okay? I wanted to float just for a little while. There's the line that says, this song is just for you, Michael. All my songs are for you and for us, people born into it and people who opt in. The line always arrived right on time whenever Big Boy said, making music for the people that be feeling me. My pulse rate elevated. My heart beat hard, vibrant, and alive. We are vibrant and alive, see? He said, making music for the people that be feeling me, and I had the same thought every time. Chocolate is a club song, and I am in the club. Chocolate is pro-joy, even though our club is bittersweet. We dance anyway. We deserve pleasure. I say it out loud. I can bring the club with me wherever I go. We can spark a revolution just by walking down the street. The club is a place where I belong. I'm never alone, I realized. The club is with me wherever I go. Just say a little bit about, just about that, and maybe I should have asked you to say something about the song or before, but just bring others into that experience. Yeah, so first, I'm prone to obsessions. <laughs> the The app I use to listen to music gave me the data at the end of the year, and Chocolate was my most listened to song, and I listened to it something like 86 times. So that's so within my character. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm really crazy about this thing, and I'm just not going to stop listening to it forever. <laughs> And 
chocolate came along. I saw it. Uh, I heard it for the first time watching a Charlize Theron, Seth Rogen movie that I can't honestly remember a lot about. But the song came on, and I did the thing I always do, which is I, like, what is this song? And then I found out what it was, and I listened to it more the next day, and, and that was it. I realized at a certain point that I, I was really relying on it. I just was sad and, and angry and frustrated and disappointed and deeply concerned. Um, the pandemic had its own weight. I think we had entered the pandemic with a measure of fatigue from, shall we say, a difficult presidential term. Mm. And um, my daughter was home from college and she was dealing with the stress of the pandemic and a lot was going on and it was just heavy. And I had these two dogs who needed to go out all the time. And every time we went out, I would put the song mm. on and I realized at a certain point that I needed it that I was relying on it, that um, whenever I listened to it, I just felt reminded that we're going to be okay. I uh, would feel a lightness that I just needed to have. And um, it's so joyful and silly in ways, but, but it's also got these phrases that seem amenable to other interpretations. Um, Right. And and so I just kept kind of connecting to, like, what's going on here? Like, what's really at work? Is this just a club song and I'm overdoing it, which would be completely in character as well? But Or, or is there more to it than that? And I just started to think I, with art that, that – with art made by black artists, there's always, I think, a subtext. There's always a context. And – um, within that, I just couldn't help myself, though, feeling light and wanting to dance and um, kind of in a way giving myself permission to do that, even though I, you know, I don't feel totally comfortable dancing in my neighborhood. Um, <laughs> it's Minnesota. That's right. All. That's right. Like, how can I, you know, and also like, how can I call more attention to myself? But I just didn't also feel right not dancing. Um, it's it's. The song is just so compelling in that way, and I needed to dance and to feel light and to be joyful and to be conspicuously joyful. Um, and I understood that anyone who saw that might think it was unusual or misunderstand it. And then I realized it's not for them, though. It's not for them. It's for me. Hmm. Um, and there was something important, I think, about also giving myself permission to to be myself wherever I am. Huh. That makes so much sense to me, Michael. And it's so amazing. I've loved that essay. Um, but it's so beautiful to hear those lines in your voice. Mm. And one of the things that you do that I think great poems do, great literature does, is to alert us to spaces and distances that we may not have been aware of. And so you bring in that that really powerful and painful image of the stone. Yeah. And then you talk about other, you know, white the white awareness that this is your burden. But there's also, you know, the sense of joy that you bring in alerts us and potentially anyone watching to the reality that the burden is not it's not blackness. No. It's the gaze that's directed toward blackness. Mm -hmm. There's a distance between the stone and and the you. Right. 
And so the fact that the joy and the song allow you to make that space feel large, even just for the length of a dog walk or the length of those beautiful sentences, that is like you create the sense of joy in my body as I get to that moment in the essay. And I, I also have felt so powerfully a version of what you describe as needing to be my full black self in plain sight. Um, and I think it's a direct result of the immense pressure and the, the willful blindness that, um, you know, sort of like surrounded us as black people for so long and wanting to push back against that, wanting to make the space not only um, larger, but also felt on the other side. And um, I, I, I feel like that's a really productive, I want to tell myself that the club that you're talking about mm-hmm. um, is an old, old club and it, it it's a productive union. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly it. And I, Tracy, I don't know if this is true of your experience as well, but I was raised at a time when a common guidance um, for black children was, you know, conduct yourself in a particular way, dress a particular way, act a particular way, and um, and you'll be received in a particular way if you dress and speak and act um, in a proper way, people will see your humanity. Yeah. And um, I, I think that that message at the time was part of an effort to, to have. I mean, this was shared with me by people who loved me and wanted the best for me and um, wanted for me a life free of challenge, adversity and racism and suffering. And I, I think we know now that that's, that there's more to it than that. <laughs> yeah. um, and we are a complex and dynamic people. Um, there is no monolithic black experience. Um, and we are many things and we have many interests and um, disagreements and all of those types of things. And I do think I find myself sometimes performing feels a bit brisk, but it also feels terribly honest, kind of performing uh, within that tradition that I, that I that I grew up in and uh, breaking free of that uh, and, you know, just acting the way I want to act in a particular moment connected me to my humanity in a, in a more expansive way. Yeah, I totally understand that feeling. And I know that, you know, the assimilationist values, <laughs> that's what I would call them, that my you know, parents who were born in the 30s um, yeah. brought to my upbringing uh, have run their course mm-hmm. as I see it. You know, I, I, um, I feel that the genius, resilience, um, and, you know, the, the vantage point of this, you know, the stone, as you call it, and, and the double consciousness that Du Bois yeah. calls it. I feel like those are really related concepts. These things hold the solution to America's current crisis. Mm-hmm. These things can no longer be kind of like relegated to the margins if America wants to 
survive and evolve. And so I almost feel called mm. to bring from that other large uh, space and, and, and the other set of, of capacities. Um, I feel called to um, bring that out into, into, you know, dialogue, into presence um, as, a, as, a, as a tool almost. Right. And and Tracy, I I really feel like that's that's something that that you're. I mean, it's a letter to Black America. It's your chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's part of the contribution it makes. And I, I mean, I just want to say, I mean, it's interesting for me to hear you say that about the calling because this is an expression of that as you as you describe it. Um, uh, you know, last time you and I, um, when I interviewed you before, when we sat together in New York City, you were the U.S. Poet Laureate. So, and I, w- I wouldn't say, I mean, you were representing the United States of America, right? You were representing to all America. And this essay is your voice that I recognize and... There's an intimacy here. There's a tenderness and a fierceness that is you opening something else up. Um, I I just wondered if you would. I, I would like. I wondered if you would read this in two parts. Um, it's not that long, but um, it's long to read all at once. But maybe just read um, from the beginning to um, to the to the paragraph to 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 where it alive despite attempt after concerted attempt to annihilate us. Sure. And let's talk about what you're saying, and and then we'll also do the second half. Okay. <clears throat> Dear Black America, we are many things, aren't we? We are hair, God. Yes, we are hair, and song, and memory. We are a language so deep it has no need for words. And we are words that faint, dart, and wheel like birds. Like James Brown, we feel good. Like Fannie Lou Hamer, we are sick and tired. We are fearsome. We are fire. Like God, we are that we are. I've always felt great freedom in the countless territories making up the realm of blackness, so many roots to wholeness, so many versions of joy. In blackness, I am local. In blackness, I am also distant kin, indigenous and immigrant at once, host and welcome guest. But in the country of America the physical and psychic territory in which the physical and psychic domain of Black America is situated, we are made to huddle together by force, by the feelings of rage, threat, exhaustion, disappointment, and long-suffering that swarm us. Sorry, let me... By the feelings of rage, threat, exhaustion, disappointment, and long-suffering that swarm us in this nation that loathes, fears, regrets, and cannot yet fully bear to accept the fact of us. And I hear my uncle saying, tell me something I don't know, with laughter in their throats. And it is that laughter, our laughter, that I cleave to. 
We revel in the depth and the flair and the belief and the secrecy of blackness. We are lucky to be who we are and we know it. And I hear my aunt saying, Amen, and their deep intaking of breath followed by a steep exhalation. Black, we revel in the resourcefulness and the resilience and the poise and the know-how and the grace and the anger and the prayers to all manner of beings that have kept us alive. Alive despite attempt after concerted attempt to annihilate us. Have you ever written all of that down before <laughs> for a general no. audience? <laughs> Am no. I right that this is a product of 2020 and this after? It, it is. Okay. I mean, I've, I've felt this thinking rising in my, in my, you know, like consciousness. And, you know, sometimes I, I have prefaced a poem, a Civil War poem that I, I read many times during the laureateship by saying, you know, something about the resilience that has, you know, prevailed despite all of these attempts at annihilation. But this is different. And what this is, is I hope it's two things. It's me talking to us, me in the club, mm-hmm. and saying, we are so here. We are so prepared to keep doing this thing that we must do. Thank you. Thank us. And let's keep going. But it's also, I hope, an address that excludes a white reader, but invites the white reader to observe and listen and eavesdrop and reflect. Yeah. And I feel that, you know, this is what, this is the, the angle that so much of my current poetry has kind of adopted. Um not necessarily strategically, but because this is where my head is. This is where my 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 heart is right now. Um, as a black person in America, as anyone who's not white in America, you know what it feels like to be the unintended audience of something and to have to bend your ears in a certain way to um, accept and, and deal properly with a statement that doesn't isn't intended for you, but that implicates you in some way. This is a skill. Hmm. And this is a skill that it's time for 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 those in the community of whiteness to embrace, um, because, like I said, I think the salvation of our of our culture, and I don't really think that's an exaggerated term, depends on that kind of um, expanded awareness of self, of place, of um, of where we are, and what we're doing here together. Yeah. And and who we are, right? That yeah. that larger we that we must also make real in a completely new way. That, yeah. that, inc- I mean, that includes all of us. But is that right. is that okay? Is that all right to say? I think that's okay. Yeah. But what it also means is if we is all of us, it's not what you've thought it was yeah. all this mm-hmm. time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we have to remake that who we are, what that what that means mm-hmm. in every way. I think that's exciting work. Mm. But I know it's also threatening to many people in, in different for different reasons. Um, because it's work that's that's saying power needs to be rethought and we can 
we can get somewhere we haven't yet been, which is also, you know, exciting, but I, I can understand how that might be frightening. Um, but we know where we have been and it's none of us is willing to go back there. You know, no one who um, understands the full um, extent of the violence, pain, suppression, um, et cetera, that the past has been characterized by is going to willingly go back there. And so the we needs to kind of shift gears. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm thinking also about how, so it's, it's both of your essays, your introduction and a letter to black America that are so connected to history because we can't talk about our resourcefulness and resilience without acknowledging how we acquired it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And when I, when I think about we in, in the most collective way and the community that so many of us are working toward and some of us are afraid of, um, that history just feels so vital to getting to where we want to be, um, to acknowledging that, to seeing it, to understanding how it affects us in the present, um, uh, and both both in terms of our structures and institutions, but also in our in our bodies, like yeah. in, in in you know not to overplay it, but in what we're asked to carry, what our parents were asked to carry, in their parents and. And how that arrives with us to where we are right now. Mm-hmm. It's funny, you um, you know, when we think about it as, you know, what all of these generations that have made us possible have been carrying, it goes from being a burden to being a birthright, right? Mm-hmm. It goes mm-hmm. it goes from being um this this extra labor to being this, um, I don't know, like a toolkit, a psychic and spiritual and actual toolkit. Um, and it's that, you know, like the spectrum of the metaphor that is really interesting to me. America has been very eager to just look at the two ends of the spectrum and, and not to dwell on um, the, the nuance, the subtlety, the transformation, the evolution that sits between burden and freedom. Mm-hmm. But there's something so liberating about actually being open and vulnerable to the painful, real reality of burden. Burden in all of its stages and what happens where's the moment where a shift occurs and freedom begins to be born like these are the instructive lessons that um that are really hard but they seem essential to getting from 21 you know 2021 to whatever whatever future sits beyond that you know i th- i think about that the language of revolution right and the title of this collection is there's a revolution outside my love um because you know tracy to into that point of like how how revolutions actually happen i think this there's a simplistic imagination that it's this one big uprising but in fact revolutions are messy 
and they go forwards and they go backwards and and it's more about the moments when um it's it's not like everybody's ever ready for a revolution or the the path has been laid right and everybody sees it yeah. um it's when like the lid is still on but it's it's slipped and it's just what you said it you there and i think you know that's one way for us to start reflecting and what you've done in this book is start reflecting on the not being able to go back even though we don't know what mean going forward means necessarily um and all of these things, all these words that have that you all have mentioned, you know, genius and resilience and tiredness and burden and joy. It's all there, but even with that tiredness and exhaustion, there's no going back, there's no standing still. Yeah. I mean, one of the beautiful things about li- listening to so many different voices in what are in some ways kind of like hot takes from this year or from yeah. last year yeah. is you get to mo- you get to notice the moments or you, you get access to the moments when each individual feels something bubbling up that that bubbles into clarity. Yeah. You know, and that can be that can be just held because it's been brought into language. Would you read um, now the the second half of your essay, A Letter to Black America? So starting with, I see you in all your forms. Sure. I see you in all your forms, Black America. And I feel inside me a welling up of pride, reverence, and fierce protection. These threats we live subjected to, these ceaseless, baseless, unending, and uneradicated threats to our black bodies, spirits, and minds, do you know what I think they are? They are the grotesque and perverse ends to which a nation founded in shame has gone in order to avoid atoning for its crimes. They are defensive acts based on the belief that if we were allowed to dwell in our full power what we would bestow upon this nation would be vengeance. But we know better, don't we? Look what we do with our voices. Look what we build with our hands. Look what we hold together with just our arms. Once a friend told me, I think we came to this earth to save it. Once I wrote in a notebook, Maybe we are operating at a heightened spiritual frequency. Why else do we call it soul? Black America, I feel myself cradled by this thing we share. When I call it race, I'm told that race is false. When I call it a movement, I'm reminded that we have moved through countless other movements before now. When I call it culture, I feel the seams of the word splitting at the great moving heft it attempts to contain. We are here in America now as we have been in America always, when we are struck down and held back, when our bodies are corrupted by the violence of others, when we love, when, as now, we are trapped inside of the finitude and flesh. Let me read that sentence one more time. When, 
as now we are trapped inside of finitude and flesh. During all of this, and then some, Black America, we are agents of the eternal. One of the things that's been helpful to me through um, the challenges, the you know, debilitating angst and depression, but also the you know consternation of of the past year has been um, trying to shift scales mentally. So if I'm dealing with uh, vexation in one context, I try and see if I can go above that and look at it from another point of view. And that's a habit that I think I've tried to make useful in real life, mm. because it's something that can, you can do in a poem. You can move from the grounded and the local to the cosmic instantly, and you can glean a new kind of insight or even power from that, that shift. And so I feel like that's, that's a part of the work that that, that piece of writing um, seeks to arrive at in a way, yeah. to say that we are doing many, 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 many more things than we, we might at any one given time remember that we're doing. Michael, I wonder what you're thinking. <clears throat> thinking a lot about multitasking. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I was thinking a little bit about life on Mars, Tracy, to be honest, and, um, and how it's simultaneously kind of ancestral and cosmic and rooted in something that's very deep and very connected to the earth and to our spiritual selves and also very present in the now, um, in, in this moment in time and in, in this context and how we'll need kind of all of those gifts um, as we do the work that we're going to do. I was also thinking about imagination hmm. and how we can't, I think, arrive at the future we claim to want. And, and, and honestly, that, that many of us do want. We can't arrive at the future we want unless we imagine what that's like and how important it is to dream and to, to be bold in that dreaming not to contain it with policy specifics or practicalities, but just to really envision the future we want and then manifest that. Um, see the possibilities as limitless and orient ourselves toward liberation and, and a world where everyone's humanity is recognized without qualification or, or prerequisite. Yeah, it's an exercise we're not frequently asked to engage in, but I, I agree with you that it's um, it's a crucial it's a crucial first step. And I mean, okay, it, it sounds good, <sighs> but then what happens when you go sit with that for a little bit and say, what would it mean to be able to live with the sense of fullness, joy, commitment? Um, contentment that I want and also not to have to be 
aware of the fact that I need to apologize for other things that I'm also doing, tolerating, or contributing to. And I feel like that as a thought experiment is maybe it's a little bit scary in some ways, but I think it's actually like very freeing. It it allows some of the anxieties to fall away because you get to say, well, what am I, what am I, what am I doing right now that I I wish I could apologize for? Mm -hmm. And if I were bold enough to apologize, who would I apologize to? Mm -hmm. And then taking those steps, even just through thought, um, I I feel like it's emboldening in a way, and it it takes away some of the outsized um, dread and fear Mm -hmm. um, that maybe are, you know, just habitual thinking that change is dangerous, um, sort of forces upon that, that otherwise um, really generative, imaginative imaginative space. You know, but in the interrogation of self, at, at least for me, I find empathy and and understanding. So I talked a little bit earlier about, you know, being a man in a patriarchy. And I think sometimes about the blessings of my life. Um, my experience is one that simultaneously includes kind of marginalization and privilege. So um, I'm the son of two people with advanced degrees. My father died when I was young, but um, I was raised in a home without concern about uh, food or shelter, mm-hmm. um, where education was a value, and I had access to ec- extracurriculars and things along those lines. And, you know, um, I think also about being a man in a society where men are privileged and also do behave in, in appalling ways. And, and all the things that we're learning about masculinity and, and the way it manifests itself and the impact that it's had on American life and and the lived experience of so many people. And um, you're right, thinking about what what we're connected to or invested in or not tearing down or not scrutinizing um, is important and meaningful. Yeah. In some ways, that's also a part of the story of this um, quarantine, because there are, for, for some people, there, there have been regions of this, this, you know, now more than a year, where the pressures that force us to, you know, like, do certain things in terms of work, obligation, some of those have eased up. And so there's this, this, this quiet space where choice comes in yeah. and we get to say, oh, what do I care about? Who do yeah. I care about? How do I, how do I like to be when nobody is, is demanding that I'm other, other than that, that version of myself? And so some of us are, are kind of like finding little glimmers of what that might look like, what that um, living by choice, um, cherishing certain things. Um, that don't always have um, hold on our attention. We're getting a little bit of practice at that, and that also feels really um, relevant to the the larger goals that we're also talking about. Yeah, Tracy, I, I think you pointed at this a minute ago, and and also I think both of you work with young people, and um, 
but just um, it's it's so it is a shift in perspective, you know, not to diminish what is what is what is terrible, and also what's been terrible about uh, what we've all gone through, and how many varieties of that experience there are, and. Um, there's something extraordinary, which I think maybe only now as we, and not everybody in the world, but we in this country start emerging from the pandemic, to be the generation of humans. I don't mean demographic, right? I mean this generation of all of us alive right now, asking these questions that you're raising, seeing these things that so late, but are finally by enough people being seen, being taken in, if only that, right now. It's exciting. Mm. <laughs> I mean, this is the, the moment seeing, framing, thinking before the real bubbling starts, right, in some ways. Um, or maybe, maybe we can, we can backtrack to that. Um, that feels like, um, you know, it's a heavy responsibility and it's also this amazing invitation to participate in something beautiful, yeah. transformative. Tracy, yeah. backtracking just a little bit, but earlier you mentioned that you were surprised by the, the verdict in the Derek Chauvin case um, and one of the things that I had been thinking about is we heard the jury was coming back in and um, it's, it's you know this is going to go one of two ways I suppose that some middle ground some mushy middle was possible but it seemed likely to go one of two ways and in thinking about what what the summer would be like if <clears throat> there was an acquittal versus what the summer would be like if um, there were convictions. And I don't know, it, it just, I want to, as we think about like the future and what's possible in this moment, I, I want to just go back to that, that reaction that you had and that, that concern about mm -hmm. the outcome. Yeah. I mean, what I mean by surprise is I realized I didn't have a known physiological and emotional mode to shift into when I heard the verdict <sighs> I hoped would occur. Right. You know? Oh. And that was really, oh. it just was memorable to think I have never witnessed justice of this kind, if we want to call it justice, and I think that it, it, it is in some ways, um, mm. saying that these things are crimes and he is guilty of them feels like a form of, of justice, but it's not total. Mm. Um, that, I, 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 I don't even know what to, to say from that, but that's how long, that's how long we've been waiting, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm young mm -hmm. and I know my grandparents have felt 
closer to home versions of the opposite of that feeling, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and on and on. Um, yeah, I was, and, I was talking to my mom and she also lives in St. Paul and, um, she said that she feared a conviction more than an acquittal huh. and, and that reality uh, affected me profoundly because her experience is if if we get this justice, if we get this accountability in this particular instance, the backlash is going to be worse. Yeah. And I got to tell you, she's got a lot of lived experience to kind of confirm that reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I believe that. That's so interesting that Tracy had to create that place inside herself to receive that verdict and your mother had this whole different dynamic inside her in terms of receiving. Um, yeah, and they're not, I mean, they're not, they're, they're not foreign to one another. Right, 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 right. Um, I would love to um, just, uh, just wind down. We're not going to wrap this up, but I feel like we've opened this up and, um, just wind down by maybe each of you reading um, a poem or two that you would like to read that feels that you've written this year um, that feels consonant with this conversation or something that will add um, to where we've gone. Yeah, I'll I'll go first if it's okay because yeah. I'm really excited about just sinking back into Michael's voice and. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about his book, Worldly Things, that's going to be coming out very soon. So um, I'll just read one of my own poems that extends from the kind of thinking I've been talking about. Um, it's called, We Feel Now a Largeness Coming On. Being called all manner of things from the dictionary of shame, not English, not words, Not heard, but worn, born, carried, never spent. We feel now a largeness coming on, something passing into us. We know not in what source it was begun, but wrapped, we watch it rise through our fallen, our slain, our millions dragged, chained, like daylight setting leaves alight, green to gold to blinding white, like a spirit caught, flame in flesh. I watched a woman try to shake it once from her shoulders and hips, a wild, annihilating fright. Other women formed a wall around her, holding back what clamored to rise. God, devil, ancestor. What black bodies carry through your schools, your cities. Do you see how mighty you've made us all these generations running? Every day, stealing ourselves against it. Every day coaxing it back into coils, and all the while 
feeding it, and all the while loving it. Um, Michael, is this book Worldly Things? Is this your first? It is. Poetry? Yes. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. What would you like to read from this? So, um, I thought I'd. I have two short poems that mm-hmm. come to mind as I think about our conversation today and about the future and imagining the possibilities. Um, the first one is called After They Left. After they left, we policed ourselves, restored our spirits in quiet tasks until the earth ran red with iron and sweat. We called old seeds from the cavernous cold to rejoin them with the heart-sick soil, then tended our crops by hand. Every day, everyone bent down on knees to pull the weeds away. Pests took their part, but left plenty. Each harvest, the village gathered together, to each a share. For all that suffered, our body stayed whole. Trauma dissipated. Where our wounds were acute, we applied more salve, calling our injured closer in so we could sing to them and give them more fruit. The Grove. Planted here as we are, see how we want to bow and sway with the motion of earth and sky. Feel how desire vibrates within us as our branches fan out, promise entanglements rarely touch. Here are sweet rustlings. If only we could know how twisted up our roots are, we might make vast shelter together. Cooler places, verdant spaces, more sustaining air. But we are strange trees, reluctant in this forest. We oak and ash, we pine, the same the same, not different. All of us reach toward star and cloud. All of us want our share of light, just enough rainfall. Mm. I love those poems. I love the quiet, urgent space they alert us to the possible they feel like you know the mythic Hmm. in in a way but I need to lean toward the reality of them as well Hmm. well thank you both Um, thank you yeah thank you thank you for letting me and letting us also just experience the conversation between the two of you and of course your writing and what you have to say. Um, really, I'm really grateful for this, and I'm 
very happy to have this space to put it out into the world. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, Michael, we will meet one day. <laughs> I suppose that's possible. In, this in a post-pandemic world. Tiny cities. Mm-hmm. These tiny cities. Yeah, I cities. live in St. Paul, too. I mean, I don't even live in Minneapolis. <laughs> we have no excuse for not running into each right. other. Um, and, Tracy, I... I'm just always so glad you're in the world, and I trust that we'll run into each other again, too. And blessings, blessings, both of you, in this time. You, too. Thanks for what you do, Krista. Mm, Thank you. And really, thanks to both of you, Tracy. Just, I love that poem and how it moves and all the things that are happening in there and how physical it is. But just, I'm so grateful to you and the work that you're doing and putting this anthology together. I love how complicated it is at times, all the conversations that are taking place and all the different voices. And I just really love this book. And it's such an honor for me to be a part of it. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your essential voice in it. Oh, my goodness. Mm 